So picking up where we left off last time, we're going to be speaking then about the confirmation, how the, one of the purposes of the gifts in the transition from Old Testament Israel to the New Testament church, one of the purposes of the gifts is to confirm the message of Christ and the apostles and, um, and of others as well who preach that same message. And as I mentioned, we are going to look at some of the passages of scripture in more detail later on that um, demonstrate this purpose of the gifts, but I want to just simply state it in kind of in broad overview fashion at this point, and that is that one of the purposes of the gifts is to confirm the message of Christ and to confirm the message of the apostles and then those who are uh, in turn representatives of the apostles. There is also the uh, purpose of providing needed revelation. The gifts provided, not all the gifts, but some of the gifts, especially the revelatory, the speaking gifts like uh, prophecy and tongues, and of course the interpretation of tongues, they provided special revelation during the New Testament church's infant and foundational stage. Now I'd like you to think about this for a minute. The place where we read most about tongues and its operation and prophecy and its operation in the New Testament church outside of Acts is in the book of 1 Corinthians. It was needed for those Corinthian um, believers. Imagine, do you know how many books of the Bible had been written at the time that Paul was probably visiting Corinth and that Paul was writing to the Corinthians? 37. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> the only books that existed at this point were Galatians, James, in First and Second Thessalonians, most likely. So I want you to imagine that. Okay, so you are in a significant transitional period, and you are moving from Old Testament Israel and all the outward uh, elements of the temple and all that. You're moving to a New Testament church situation. You're living in Corinth. Corinth was a was a debauchery. It was a city filled with debauchery. In fact. Um, one, of the, one of the words that came to be used during that time was you're a Corinthian to refer to you as being a very debauched person. And um, you live in a city that's filled with idolatry, immorality, frequent travelers, the pla its, its location geographically meant that there were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of commerce going on in the city of Corinth, frequent travelers from all over the world. So you're a brand new young believer, converted out of paganism, and you need some instruction. <laughs> you, need, you need a word from the Lord to tell you how to live, what to believe. You need that. And the only books that have been written at this point are Galatians, James, and First and Second Thessalonians. It's probably not likely that you even have a copy of that, let alone even a copy of First Corinthians or Second Corinthians itself. And so the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues as, it inter as interpreted was something that was useful and very needful in these very early stages in the life of the church. Revelation from God was given through these gifts in order to direct the life of the church in its founding uh, period of time. And so those are some of the key purposes what I'm going to call transitional, redemptive, historical purposes in 
the life of the church. But there are also other gifts that have purposes as well, and these I'm calling ongoing church building purposes. So, one of the ongoing church building purposes is the equipping of the saints. We, we discussed this last time, I think in answer to the question my brother asked. Um, equipping, certain gifts equip the saints to use their gifts to build up the body. I'm going to go through these and then we're going to read the passage that, that um, it supports this. The second is for the edification of the church. The, the gifts edify the church. They build the church up. Thirdly is Christ-likeness. That is what the church is going for. The use of the gifts is not just to be able to use them, but so that the, so that the church will become mature and like Christ. That's the standard of maturity, is Christ-likeness. And then, fourthly, for doctrinal stability. Let's look then at Ephesians, if you will, Ephesians chapter 4, turn with me there. We looked at this last time, but we'll review it again. Let's begin, well, notice verse 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then in verse 8 it says that Christ um, ascended and he gave gifts to men. And then he begins identifying what those gifts are in verse 11. It says, and he gave some as apostles, and notice apostles is listed first again, some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor might say pastor hyphen teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints. These gifts were given to equip the saints. That is to equip all of the people of God in the church. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. They are to do the work of service. And what is that work of service to result in? For the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is to be built up through the works of service, through the gifts that are exercised in the body. Until, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Knowledge is a key element in the maturing of the body. The knowledge of the Son of God, and that knowledge is not merely intellectual, academic, so that you can answer the questions correctly on a test, but it's so that you will know the Lord in a personal way, in an experiential way, as well as knowing the truth about him. <clears throat> and it is to a mature man to the, tr to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's just another way of saying, I think, what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, when he says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We're to be like Christ. He's, he's the measure. He's the standard. He's the goal. Now, of course, we'll never reach that in this life, but that's what we're aiming for. And that's what the gifts are there for, is to build us up in the faith. And when that happens, look at verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And so doctrinal stability, 
The Apostle Paul was interested in the people of, of Ephesus knowing and understanding God's word, God's truth, and being stabilized, being um, able to, to be anchored so that they're not tossed about by every wind that comes along, every wind of doctrine. And so the gifts are given for those purposes as well. So those are some of the ongoing purposes of the church in those gifts that um, are, as I say, ongoing. Well, that brings us then to the subject of the continuation versus cessation of the gifts of the Spirit. Now, the chapter spent quite a bit of time on that, and so I am going to as well. Um, basically, I'm going to follow the structure of the, the chapter in the 54 Truths. And um, my focus is going to be on the extraordinary gifts, what we might call the extraordinary gifts or the sign gifts. And that's because nobody has a, nobody has a controversy over whether or not the gift of service continues. <laughs> um, there, there's not an issue on that matter. There's nobody who, who debates whether or not the gift of, of administration continues. The, the, the debate is over whether or not those gifts that we might call extraordinary, um, those gifts that the scriptures call sign gifts, whether those continue today or not. So we're gonna look at some of the issues regarding that, and I'm gonna follow the structure again of the book. But um, let me give you a quick definition of these, these kind of gifts that we're talking about. Sam Waldron, in his, his uh, helpful little book, defines these gifts in this way. He says, the miracle, we might call these miraculous gifts, or supernatural gifts. He says, miracle is used in different translations of the English Bible to translate a specific collection of biblical words. And those words are works, powers, wonders, and signs. The scriptures use uh, those words to describe these kinds of gifts. And he says a strict definition based on the terminology that the scriptures themselves use is this. A miracle is a redemptive, has to do with God's redeeming purposes, revelatory, it's revealing something, that's the, the idea that it's a sign gift, it, it points to something. A redemptive, revelatory, extraordinary, it's not the ordinary thing that you see happening every day. You don't see somebody every day being um, told, silver and gold have I none, such as I have give I thee, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, and somebody who's been crippled all his life suddenly can walk. So it's, it's, it's not the ordinary thing, it's, it's extraordinary. External, by external we mean, sometimes we use the term miracle to refer to something that's internal, like we might say the miracle of the new birth. Well, strictly speaking, the word miracle is not applied to the new birth. Um, we can talk about it in that way because it is something that is definitely God's work and it's in a, in a very real sense supernatural that is beyond our nature and capability of producing it. Nevertheless, the scriptures reserve the word miracle and, and signs and wonders for something other than the new birth itself. And so it is external. These are external signs that... that um, authenticate the message of the messenger. So a miracle is a redemptive, revelatory, extraordinary, external, astonishing, that's why they're called wonders, 
manifestation of the power of God, and that's why they're called powers. And so that is a, I think, a helpful definition of what we're talking about when we talk about these sign gifts, these, these uh, miraculous gifts. So what are the arguments for its uh, continuation? Well, the first one listed by um, our author is <clears throat> because they are needed for the maturity and mission of the church. He argues that all of these miraculous gifts, all of the gifts are needed today. Um, this is the, the argument for, for continuationism because they're all needed for the maturity and mission of the church. The church still, still needs to mature. The church still, needs, still has the same mission. And since, uh, since it does, we are to uh, continue. We need all these gifts to, to make that happen. Um, I'm going to give you my response to this. Now, I recognize that not everybody will hold the, the view that I hold to, but this is the, the view that we hold to in, in our church's confession and um, that the church here traditionally has held to and we believe are sound, uh, biblical, that's a sound biblical view. Um, but we do recognize that there are godly people who hold a different view and I'm not looking down my nose at those people um, at, by any means. <clears throat> so, but I do differ with them, and I'll give you my reasons. Well, I believe that um, this particular support or idea does not hold truth because it can be clearly shown that there are some gifts that don't continue today. Let's use the preeminent example, and that is the gift of apostle. And again, I'm not going to have time to go through all the details of this, but that's fairly easily demonstrated from Scripture. What is an apostle? In the Scriptures, there is an apostle with a capital A versus apostle with a lowercase a. It's kind of like the word elder. We can use the word elder, and the Bible uses the word elder to refer to someone who is simply elderly, an elderly man or an elderly woman but also uses the word elder to refer to someone who, who occupies the office of elder. And so there's a capital, capital E, so to speak, when we talk about that particular um, use of the word elder. Well, the word apostle has the same usage. It's a word, simply means messenger, as it were, but um, we can say messenger with a capital M, that is an apostle with a capital A. And there are those who have who are capital A apostles. The qualifications to be a capital A apostle, which is what is, uh, that Paul is talking about in the lists that we have gone through when we're talking about the gifts of the Spirit, the qualifications to be a capital A apostle are, somebody tell me, anybody know any of them? Must have been taught or instructed by Christ himself. Okay, he is one who has been directly chosen and appointed by Christ. And I'm, we're gonna, we don't have time to go to all the passages of scriptures to demonstrate this, but um, trust me on this. Directly chosen and appointed by Christ. You can look up Luke 6.13 if you like, and I got other passages. What else? Eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Yes, he had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. Remember in Acts chapter 1 when Judas had committed suicide and they're going to replace him. They had to look for someone who had been an eyewitness and who had gone in and out among them, who had seen Christ, had been taught by Christ. And then there's another one. 
We'll look at this in a passage later. The other one is that they perform miraculous signs authenticating their position of an, as being an apostle. And we'll look at that in a passage along those lines later with, where Paul says that he uh, performed those signs. And so to be an apostle, you had to meet those qualifications. Well, obviously, there's nobody today who's going to meet those qualifications because Jesus is gone. He's gone to heaven. Um, centuries have gone past. The point here then is this. If the first gift, the one first preeminent in the lists, if the first and most important and foundational, as we shall see, this is a foundational gift too, does not continue, then it cannot be said that all the gifts are needed today in order to accomplish the maturity and mission of the church. If that were the case, and by the way, if this were the case, that we had to have all the gifts, prophet, uh, tongue speakers, and all that, if that were the case, then the world would be filled with all sorts of immature churches, wouldn't it? Because the vast majority of the churches throughout the ages did not have apostles, prophets, tongue speakers, interpreters, miracle workers, healers, etc. And so if all those gifts were needed for the, the maturity and the mission of the church, then we would have... Have, have had throughout the ages churches filled with nothing but immature baby churches. Well, I think that, as we shall see, um, that is not a good argument for the continuation of the gift, of all of the gifts. Secondly, um, the argument is that 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13 teach the continuation of the gifts until the return of Christ. He points out in this chapter that some would say that the, in this particular passage that, that um, it's referring to the closing of the canon or the completion of the canon. And, he, and um, the author points out that um, that is one of the arguments for the cessation of the gifts from 1 Corinthians 13. I agree with... Uh, with those who say that that is not what 1 Corinthians 13 is teaching. I don't believe that 1 Corinthians 13 is about the completion of the canon. And I do agree that it's about the um, ushering in of the eternal state in the second coming of Christ. However, I don't agree that this passage is intended by Paul to teach that the gifts continue throughout that entire period. Look with me at 1 Corinthians then, chapter 13. Now remember from last week that the reason why the Apostle Paul launches into what he says in chapter 13, and of course there were no chapter breaks at that time, was because he's talking about it showing them a still more excellent way, and that is the way of love. And there's where we learned that love and the fruit of the Spirit is to control the gifts of the Spirit. And so his argument is that, that, that love and the characteristics of love are what are to be most characteristic of the church of God. They are to be preeminent in the church. And he says in verse 8, love never fails. But if there, and I'm going to read from the New American Standard, so if yours is a little different, then I think you'll be able to follow along. If there are gifts of prophecy, or literally, if there are prophecies, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. Now, 
when is this going to happen? What is the time period? What is the time frame that he's talking about? Let me just make a few notes here with regard to this particular section of scripture. And then, um, and then we're going to read through it and note and see the things that I'm noting here. First of all, I've already read verse 8, and the word prophecies is in the plural. And I, and I believe that what is happening here in this particular section, what Paul is saying is that there is a time period in which the revelation, the, um, the prophecies, the messages, the knowledge that comes from these prophecies, those are going to exist, but they are going to fade out. They're going to no longer be needed. And the knowledge that comes from them is temporary and it's partial. That, I believe, is what Paul is saying. Whereas love is permanent, it's forever. It extends on into the eternal state. But what we gain from the gifts of prophecy and tongues, the knowledge that we gain from that is just temporary and it's partial. That's what I think he's saying here. So the contrast then is between the partial and the perfect. That which is perfect is the perfect knowledge, the perfect understanding that comes when we are ultimately with the Lord in glory. I think the analogy of a child supports this. The analogy of a dim mirror supports this. And in fact, his plain statement in verse 12, where he says, I know in part, and then I shall know fully, supports this. So let's read this passage and, um, and see. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, that is literally if there are prophecies, so the, the focus here is on the, what comes through the gifts, not the gifts themselves. If there are prophecies, they will be done away. <clears throat> if there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. That doesn't mean that in glory we'll have no knowledge at all. He's not talking about all knowledge whatsoever. He's talking about this partial knowledge. Read with me. Continue to read, read with me. Verse 9. For we know in part, you know, we, we have a partial knowledge now, and we prophesy in part. Prophecy gives us partial knowledge. The, prophet, the, the message that comes through prophecy gives us partial understanding, partial knowledge. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When that perfect knowledge comes, when we're known fully, as he will go on to say, when that happens, which is in glory, then the partial will be gone. We won't, it won't be partial anymore. It'll be full. And he says, verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. So these are areas having to do with, with um, uh, kind of a partial knowledge, a partial understanding, a immature, incomplete knowledge of God's purposes in, in, in life. He says, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Just an analogy to say when we get into glory, we're going to know in a way that we do not know here. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So it's not that what we see in the mirror is wrong. We see in the mirror dimly. It's kind of like if we had a, a dimmer switch in here and you, you turn the lights on, but you've got it dimmed way down. 
And you can look around and what you see is not wrong, it's not inaccurate, it's true, it's just that not as clearly seen, not as fully seen as when somebody flips the dimmer switch all the way up and the light goes on and it's nice and big and bright and you can see all the details. It's basically you're seeing the same thing but you're seeing it in a much fuller, complete way. And that I think is what the analogy is here. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Here he comes very, and makes it very clear as to what he's talking about. Now I know in part, but, and, and where does this knowledge come from? It comes from the, the prophecies, from the, 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 the uh, interpreted tongues that have been spoken in Corinth. Corinth. We know we have this information, and it's partial. We know in part, but then when we are in glory, we will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. There's a fullness of knowledge and of understanding that takes place in that day. And so, but his point is in verse 13, but now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love, and love is greater than all of this partial knowledge that we have now. So Corinthians, don't get so, don't get so um, enamored with the gifts of prophecy and the gift of tongues and become overcome with all the... This is what you need to be focusing in as not those things. You need, to be, you need to be... Because they're just partial. They just give you partial knowledge. You need to be focusing on love, which is that which endures forever. Jim. Just, just reading this paragraph then. If I was a continuationist, let's say, I would... It looks like what he's saying, if you just from the reading, not from experience in the ch in church life per se, because I've never really been in the church where tongues were spoken, you know. But but anyways, you're saying it, it appears to me that he gives it away when he says when the perfect comes, that's when these things will be done away with, which is what you were saying, right? Or or not? In other words, when is the perfect? You said it's it's when we're with God. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be an argument then? that right now we're still in the part, if you will, to use that phrase, we, we still are, we don't know fully yet. True. And he's saying, when we do know fully, these things will cease. He, isn't that kind of how that reads? I'm, I'm not trying to defend, mm -hmm. but I'm struggling with just interpreting this paragraph, how it's, how it's reading. Yeah, yeah, what he, what he is doing, what he is not doing, is Paul is not addressing the issue like we think of it today. You know, he's not, he's not saying, okay, we need to talk about the cessation of the gifts. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is he's trying to show the, um, the partial nature and the incomplete nature of that which comes from the gifts, which is the knowledge and the revelation. He he's not saying anything about whether the gifts continue or not. That's not the focus of what he's talking about. He doesn't address that issue. Now, it could be... I can understand how those um, who would interpret this as being a from a continuation perspective would, con con would conclude from that, okay, well, if the knowledge is partial, then the gifts from which that knowledge comes are, must continue throughout the whole period of time where we have partial knowledge. But that is not necessarily the case. It's a conclusion that's only a possible conclusion, but not a necessary conclusion and it is beyond the scope of what the Apostle Paul is actually dealing with here in this section. So he's not addressing the issue at all of what, how long the gifts continue. He's simply saying through these gifts, the knowledge and revelation that we get from them 
It's going to be partial, and that's going to be partial all the way through this period until the Lord comes. I hope that helps. It's, it's a little bit, you know, it's, it's something you have to wrestle through and think through, and, and I would again recommend if you would, would like to get some more uh, information on that, um, Sam Waldron's book. So, all right. So that is my, um, my response to the 1 Corinthians chapter 13 defense or position for the continuation of the gifts. And then thirdly, um, because non-apostles exercise the gifts. Well, it is true that there were non-apostles who exercised the gifts. <clears throat> um, let me give you some passages of scripture that they use to cite this. And I'm going to have, you know, some, some of you um, just read these for me. Um, Lester, would you look up 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7? And Jim, since you're uh, there, would you look up Galatians chapter 3 and verse 5? And the rest of you can turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Would you read your verse, Lester? So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so Paul says to the Corinthians, you are not lacking in any gift. Well, the fact that he tells the Corinthians that they're not lacking in any gift, which would include the fact that they've had apostles in their midst, they've had prophets in their midst and tongues, etc. The fact that he says that to the Corinthians says nothing about whether or not they continue today. The Corinthians had it. Well, that's obvious. We know they had it. That's not the debate. <laughs> um, the debate is whether or not they continue, and does that verse prove that they continue today? Well, no, it does not prove that at all. It simply tells us that the Corinthian church was not lacking in any gift. Jim? So that, excuse me, so then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay. He who uh, provides the Spirit and works miracles among you. This is the Galatians. Now remember what Paul is doing in the Galatian epistle. There are those who have distorted the gospel, and Paul says, he begins the, the Galatian epistle by saying, I am a called apostle, chosen by God, called by God as an apostle. And the message that I am giving, you are to adhere to that. And if I give you, and if even I give you a different message, or an angel gives you a different message, you are to say anathema. And he says to the Galatians at the beginning of chapter 3, who has bewitched you that you should follow these other false teachers? He says nothing in this particular passage about who works the miracles other than it's God. Does he who works miracles among you, that is probably God, or it may be the Apostle Paul himself in defending his position as an apostle and the message, the gospel that came from him. So nothing about whether or not the Galatians were the ones working the miracles. <clears throat> Most likely they weren't. Most likely they were, it was, they were worked by the Apostle Paul and perhaps Barnabas, depending on exactly when Paul went through there. If, it, if the description from, uh, from Acts chapter 13 through Acts, for, through Acts chapter 14 verse 23 is the time that he went to the Galatian region, then it was Paul and Barnabas who were there, most likely, in the, in the Galatian area and among the Galatian churches, and most likely they were the ones who were working the miracles. So this passage there says nothing about 
the continue and even if that were the case even if he worked them during that time period again it says nothing about whether or not those gifts are to continue today just that they existed then what about others besides the apostles who um, who worked miraculous gifts? Well, in Acts <clears throat> chapter, we'll read chapter eight. But before we get to chapter eight, let's actually go back to chapter six. What happens in Acts chapter eight is we see Philip working miracles, and we see Stephen doing the same thing. But in Acts chapter six, of course, is where. Uh, kind of the foundation, not exactly the same as deacons today, but where the foundation is that we, for which we um, uh, get the office of deacon. And uh, look with me at verse 5 of Acts chapter 6. It says they're going to have these men do certain things so that the apostles can devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. It says, and the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen. Now, note, remember, there's Stephen or Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip. So there's Stephen and Philip, and then others: Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, proselyte from Antioch. And then what Luke is going to do in his um, book, in the book of Acts, is he's going to pick the first two of these, Stephen and Philip. He's going to tell a little bit about them. <clears throat> and what happens through them. So look with me at verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples increasing, continuing to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So they're preaching the word of God. Even priests are becoming obedient to the faith. In verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Well, let's go back and see something about Stephen and what happened just prior to this. Look at verse 6. And these, that is, the men that we read about earlier, including Stephen and Philip, and these they brought before the apostles. Notice it's the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. So these men had something special happen to them and I believe that it was not just that they were going to be able to serve tables, but when the apostles laid their hands on them, they laid their hands on them to, to um, set them aside for a particular significant ministry during this time in the life of the church. And then the very next thing that we read about the first one in the list is Stephen. And what's he out doing? He's preaching the word. And, he, and as he preaches the word, he's performing great wonders and signs among the people those great wonders and signs are confirming the message that he is delivering, that he, that they, he learned from the apostles. And so we have this, in a sense, this transition, um, this giving of the, of the ability to perform signs and miracles through the apostles to others as well, much like Jesus himself did with the apostles, which we will see later. Turn with me, and of course Stephen gives this long sermon in Acts chapter 7, he ends up being stoned. And then it picks up talking about Philip, the second one in the list. Okay, this is what happened to Stephen. Now what about Philip? Look with me at Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. They're preaching the word. 
And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs. Oh, signs. These are signs, remember. What are they signs of? They're signs of the fact that the message that they are delivering is in fact the truth. And from Christ himself and ultimately from God himself. And saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was much rejoicing in that city. And so I believe that what we have here is we have those <clears throat> who are either apostles or those closely connected to the apostles upon whom hands had been laid, who performed these signs and miracles and wonders, and it's not something that is given to the congregation, just kind of anybody, anywhere, at any time. So I believe these passages of scripture that are used to support the continuation of the gift because they were performed by non-apostles is a, a very weak argument. And then lastly, because historical evidence for the post-century church points to the continuation of the gifts. Well, <clears throat> there are those who, would, who, who are excellent scholars who would beg to differ on what history demonstrates. For example, um, Sinclair Ferguson says this, he says that he points out that the absence of the extraordinary gifts in history has been one of the, quote, serious difficulties with which it, that is continuationism, has never been able to overcome. And Richard Gaffin, in his, I have a little paper that he has written, I think he's maybe, this has maybe been converted into a book or a booklet, booklet. he says this, <clears throat> any evidence available from before the fourth century is, to say the least, too isolated and obscure to be decisive. And so, we don't have time to survey all of the <clears throat> historical writings. I just want to point out the fact that there are good scholars who say that this historical evidence <clears throat> is really not there for proving the continuation of the gifts. <clears throat> and in fact, if we look at the history of the church, and this is a segue into the next section, if we look at the history of the church, we will find that it is um, not to be expected that miracles will be performed throughout the centuries. <clears throat> but those are the arguments for the continuation that he, he um, puts forth in the book. <clears throat> and now we're going to look at the arguments for cessation of the sign gifts. And the last thing that I mentioned ties in with what I'm going to say right now. And that is... Um, I believe that the gifts, the extraordinary gifts, the sign gifts did come to an end. They have ceased because of what I'm going to call the clustering principle. And by the way, let me make a side note here before I forget to say this. <clears throat> We're talking about some person who has been gifted to do these miraculous gifts. We're talking about miracle workers. Okay, we're talking about people who are designated as prophets who speak prophecy. We're talking about people who perform healings over and over again. Healers, you might say. <clears throat> we're not talking about whether or not God can at this time perform a miracle. I believe that he can and I believe that he does. That he often has, when I say often, relatively often, throughout the globe and throughout the history of the church, has performed miracles. But that's different than saying that there are people who are miracle workers. And so I'm making that distinction, all right? We're talking about 
those who are miracle workers in that sense. And what about the clustering principles? Anybody know what I'm talking about when I talk about the clustering principle? Okay, <clears throat> let me ask you this question. If you look, we're going to take for a moment and do a survey of the history of redemption up until the time of Christ. Okay, not including the time of Christ, but all the way up through John the Baptist who, who um, declared that Jesus is, is, the, is the Lamb of God. <clears throat> Looking at all that period of time, I want you to name for me those who perform miracles. Moses. 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 Okay, good. Elijah. Elijah. Moses. Elijah. Okay. So we've got we have creation. And then as time goes on, we've got Moses. And then we have Elijah. Who else? Elisha. Elisha, okay. So kind of a, a, a couple of pairs, so to speak. Jesus. Okay, up, up until the time of Jesus. We'll, we'll get to him in just a moment. Prior to the time of Jesus. Well, we probably had Joshua in here. Yeah, maybe Samson, um, depending on how we want to interpret him. Okay. Daniel made interpretations. Okay, now, was Daniel actually performing a miracle? Well, he did get revelation from God, so maybe we could possibly say Daniel. And if that's the case, then yeah, we would include Joseph. Okay, well, look at this. We're talking about probably a period of uh, maybe, I'm just going to round it off and say 5,000 years. How many miracle workers did we have during this time? Now, there were other miracles, like with Jonah being swallowed by a whale. That's probably, we could call that a miracle. But that was something done to him. Daniel, the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, Daniel delivered from the lions. That was something done to them, a miracle that God did done to them. But they were out there saying, you know, <clears throat> Daniel didn't come along and say, I uh, command you lions to have your mouth shut. You know, he wasn't performing a miracle. What does that tell us? It tells us that there were certain periods of time in which miracles were clustered, and in particular, we think of these two times right here. There's, there's where the proliferation of miracles occurred. What was happening in the history of redemption at this point? With Moses and Joshua, that was a, the establishment of Israel as a nation. They had gone through the 
uh, the period of time in Egypt and God delivered them. And now at Mount Sinai, God is officially, formally establishing Israel as a nation and then and leading them into the promised land. And this is the nation through which the Messiah is going to come. And so he delivers them from Egypt, establishes them as, an, as a nation, puts them into the promised land, a very key time in the history of redemption. And there is a lot of revelation that is happening at that time because it's coming through Moses. Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And oftentimes, um, the message, the, um, the, the miracles accompany a time of revelation. So we have Moses and Joshua performing these miracles, Moses primarily, at a key time in the history of redemption, unlike no other, in which is also, I believe, a type of, of what was going to come through Christ. Christ is going to do the same thing. He is going to establish a new people of God, an internal people of God, the church, Moses being a type of that. Then we, so that's a key time in the history of redemption. Then we've got Elijah and Elisha. What had happened? <clears throat> there was a promise that God had made through Abraham. God is going to fulfill that promise through the nation of Israel. He establishes the nation with Moses and Joshua. But then under we have David, the period of David, the period of Solomon. And shortly after Solomon, um, the time of Solomon, we have the kingdom being divided into the northern and southern kingdoms. The kingdom is divided, and uh, this is a critical time. What's going to happen with God's promises? Here, the nation of Israel, through which he's going to bring the Messiah, it's split in half now. Well, not exactly in half, but it, it's split into the northern and southern kingdoms. And there's all sorts of corruption that's going on. Well, Elijah and Elisha come along as the prophets to say, in essence, God is still God. And even though there is Baal around, and even though we have these idols in these foreign countries, God is still God and he is king and, 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 and um, ruler over even the foreign gods. And so Elijah on Mount Carmel says, let it be known that you are God and he defeats Baal and the 450 prophets of Baal in calling down fire from heaven. And then the other miracles that, that um, Elisha, Elijah and Elisha perform, this is the time that inaugurates the period of the prophets. The prophets kind of come along with these two prophets, Elisha and Elijah, inaugurating that period of time. The kingdom is divided. There's going to be prophets coming to each of the northern and southern kingdoms. Elijah and Elisha inaugurate that period of time saying, look, God is still working with his people. God is still God. He's still king. He's not going to forget his promise, the covenant that he made with Abraham. A key time in the period of history, in the history of redemption. Miracles are clustered around these times. This is the time where the, we see the most miracles happening. The clustering principle. It is not, if you look at the history that's 5,000 years, think of how many people went through all those 500,000 years, those faithful people of God, never saw a miracle, never did a miracle. History leads us to believe that we are not to expect miracles to continue on. And so I would say the clustering principle tells us that to expect the continuation of miracles is contrary to the way God works in history.
Okay, let's see here. I better erase that. Any questions about that clustering principle? And I can see we're going to have to really speed it up here. Okay, because of the authenticating purpose of the sign gifts, signs point to something beyond themselves. <clears throat> what is the purpose of the gifts? They are to be signs of something. They are to authenticate the messenger and the message. <clears throat> and we're just going to do a real quick survey. Moses, of course, his message was authenticated by what he uh, performed, all the miracles that he performed to prove that God had sent him. <clears throat> Look at <clears throat> this, this passage. <clears throat> Deuteronomy, Moses. It says, there's none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt for all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that Moses did. None like him. We're not expecting what he did to be continued. They were signs. They were great wonders, but they were to support his place in the history of redemption in, in the message that he gave, that God is God. First Kings chapter 18 Elijah on Mount Carmel, I've already referred to this. Let it be known, Elijah prayed, let it be known that you were God in Israel. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 8, Elijah, Elisha heals Naaman, that he would know that there's a prophet in Israel and that his message is true. What about Nicodemus when he comes to Jesus as we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. It's to prove that and authenticate who Jesus is and the message of, of Jesus. 6.14, Jesus feeds, uh, uh, feeds 5,000. The people saw the sign that they had done. They said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come, the prophet that had been prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18 to be like Moses. John 10, Jesus himself says, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Believe the works. If you're not going to believe my words, at least believe my works. Let my works demonstrate the fact that my message is true and that I have come from God. John 20, an overarching passage describing Jesus says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe. He wrote the signs. John describes certain particular signs, the healing of the blind man in John 9, for example. These were signs, and why, what was the purpose of these signs? It was to authenticate who Jesus is, that he was the Messiah, come from God, and that people might believe that he is the Christ, and in believing have life in his name. And Peter says the same thing with regard to Jesus, reflecting back after Jesus had been resurrected. He said, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, God's attesting to who he is, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. It's, it's an attestation. It is a confirmation. It's authentication of who Jesus is. And here Paul says that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with <coughs> utmost patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds by Paul. This is talking about Paul himself. I did the signs of an apostle, therefore I am uh, to be regarded as an apostle. Look with me in Matthew chapter 
Now, this is going back in time now, Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus appoints the 12. He says, he called, him, called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So he calls them, gets his disciples, gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these, and then Matthew lists them. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, proclaiming, and says, proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And so these apostles are sent out as plenty potentiaries. That is, they are, they are Christ's representatives. They are as Christ to the people, to the cities to which they are being sent. And so he says, you 12 apostles, I want you to go out. You've got a message to deliver. The kingdom of heaven is here. I have come proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. I am the king. <coughs> And I want you to perform these signs, authenticating your message. And if people receive, and those who receive you will receive me. You are so closely tied to me in what your function here is in the history of redemption. You're so closely tied to me that those who receive you are in effect receiving me and in fact receiving my father as well. And so we see uh, this purpose of authenticating. And then Hebrews <coughs> says the same thing. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to, attested to us by those who heard, that is, the apostles and prophets. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts, that is, distributions literally of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So God was attesting, he was, he was authenticating the message that came through the prophets by means of the prophets and apostles by means of um, attesting to them by means of these signs and miracles. <coughs> Give me just one more minute and we'll, we will click, quit. Turn with me Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. And this has to do with the foundational place of the apostles and prophets. I believe that there is a significant um, significance to this. The Apostle Paul says with regard to the Gentiles in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of the household, of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And he talks about the whole building being fitted together and is building up into a holy temple. And we've seen from other passages that we are living stones in this path, in this uh, temple. But the point here is simply this, that the apostles and prophets are foundational. They are not part of the superstructure. The foundation is laid, it's laid once, once for all foundation, once for all foundation laying, and what their place in the history of redemption was a once for all time, and therefore is not continuing on today. Well. Uh, more could be said. Our time is up. Thank you for your attention. And um, if you have further questions, come and talk to me.